Hi, we're the Mike family. I'm Shelby. I'm Alexis. I'm Nathan. And I'm Jeff. Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians 1, 15 to 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and earth are created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn of the dead, so that he might have first place in everything. For in him and all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith, without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Hi, I'm Linda Farnsworth, your JK Kids coordinator. Happy to be back with you again. We just heard some more from Paul's letter to the new Christians in Colossae. Today's piece ended with this. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. When Paul writes about the gospel, he's talking about the good news of Jesus the news that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he's God's son and that he died and then he rose again, all to make it so that God could forgive us when we make bad choices, when we sin. Paul shares in the letter that all things, people, pets, you, me, all things were created because of Jesus, God's son and are to be joined back to God through Jesus. This means that it's God's plan for us and all things to be close to God through our relationship with Jesus. Have you ever met somebody and not knowing why, for some reason you just kind of automatically didn't like them? Well, then later, you got to know them and found out they were really fun and cool and you guys became such great friends. Well, guess what? Before Paul became a devoted follower of Jesus, you know, he did not like Jesus so much that he was super mean to anybody who did like Jesus. Oh. Something cool about today's scripture is when Paul writes, I, Paul, have become a servant. It is Paul's proclaiming in the letter to the Colossians and ultimately to the world that he's a believer, a servant of Jesus, and not that mean guy that he used to be. 
The absolute best part, though, is why Paul changed his mind. It's because he now understood who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and he wanted to share that wonderful good news, the gospel, to everybody who would hear about it, to his friends in Colossae, to us. Not only did Jesus die for people who already loved him, but he also died for people like Paul who did not. And even people who weren't even born yet, like you and me. Okay, so for today's family action, our fa, you'll need two things. A red pen or crayon and just any piece of paper. It can be a scrap paper or whatever. That's fine. So grab those things and then I'll tell you what is next. So you know, Jesus and all people have what color blood? Red. That's right. Okay. You know, it was not a very easy thing for Jesus to die for us. Have you ever gotten so hurt that you needed a bandage because you were bleeding? I bet that hurt. Well, when Jesus died on the cross, that hurt a lot. Paul writes about how Jesus was able to make peace for us through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. So for today's family action, there are two steps. The first one is take your paper and draw anything that reminds you about what Jesus did for you. And the second thing you're going to do is explain your image to another person in your home, or maybe you can call somebody, a friend or relative, and tell them about your image and what Jesus did for you. I will share with you that I drew a drop of blood because it reminds me of how Jesus, he shed blood on the cross for me. And I have become a believer and a servant just like Paul. All right, you guys. I'm excited to see you at 1140 after worship service today so that we can have East Sunday School. And I'd love for you to tell me all about and show me your picture. Thank you to Captain Linda and leading us and our children through that lesson. And our children here at John X Presbyterian Church are one of the most important parts of this community. So right now, we want to take a moment to bless the children as they prepare for East Sunday School and as we move through worship here, we want to bless our, the children of this community together. So I invite you, wherever you are, to join with me and pull your hands out or push your hands out, put your hands out like this um, and join me in blessing our children. Wherever you are, just towards the camera, put your hands out. May our Lord Jesus Christ teach you and guide you, both through this worship service and through East Sunday School that will take place later. May that time be a time of learning, growth, and may you experience the love of our Lord Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit during East Sunday School. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bless you. Amen. As we move into our sermon now, based on Colossians 1, 15-23, I invite you to join with me in prayer. Please pray with me. Lord, 
we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word expressed through the Apostle Paul. We thank you for Paul's model, Paul's example of being a servant of this gospel. We thank you for Paul's invitation for us to become servants as well. So we ask that through the preaching of your scriptures, you would speak to us and that we would hear your word clearly, Lord. We thank you and it's in your name we pray. Amen. In this passage in verse 23, Paul says that he has become a servant of this gospel. This gospel is the one that Paul has become a servant of. He separates his gospel from other gospels that might be out there. And that may seem a little odd to us at first, but when we place ourselves in Paul's situation, when we look at the Roman Empire, which was the governing power under which Paul was ruled, it makes a little bit more sense why Paul says this gospel is the one that he became a servant of. Because the Roman government, they would proclaim gospels regularly. Gospel, it just means good news. It's another way of saying good news. And the Roman government, the officials in it, they would go to different cities and proclaim what they believed was good news fairly regularly. The good news that they would proclaim, though, was focused on Roman military power, usually. Rome's mighty military would have defeated an enemy, would have vanquished another foe, would have brought more people into the empire, would have expanded the boundaries of the empire. And in Rome's eyes, that was good news to be proclaimed. Because Rome fashioned itself as the bringer of peace. Reconciliation was to have happened through Rome. Now, of course, they left out that any sort of peace or reconciliation achieved by Rome was through military might and through violence and through killing. They proclaimed the good stuff and left out all of the suffering and oppression that they took part of. But these gospels, this good news, it was messages of power, of Roman power. And it would be proclaimed fairly regularly. So when Paul says that he's become a servant of this gospel, he is separating the gospel he's proclaiming from all of these other supposed messages of good news that would have just flooded the early readers of Paul's letters. And what is it that Paul focuses on in this gospel? Well, in verses 15 through 20, I think we have a really succinct summary of this gospel that Paul is talking about, the one of which Paul has become a servant. It focuses on Jesus. And when you read 15 through 20 closely, you realize that according to Paul, Jesus really is enough. Because this language that Paul uses, it is expansive. It is language of power, really, placed in Jesus' hands. Paul says that Jesus is the Son of God, the, the firstborn. He says firstborn twice. Paul says that Jesus is the image of God. All creation is held through Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of all creation, really. Jesus is the one holding the cosmos together. And peace and reconciliation are achieved through Jesus. According to Paul, Jesus really is enough. 
But there's something a little deeper happening in this language that Paul uses here in verses 15 through 20. Because most of this language, scholars believe, wasn't actually Paul's words. What it looks like Paul has done here in this letter is Paul has taken a hymn or a poem, something that has been passed down through other Christians, developed by other Christians, and Paul is using that to explain this gospel. It's a hymn or a poem, and when you look at the language and you put it in the situation that Paul's in, in the Roman Empire, it becomes really clear that these early Christians were doing something subversive. Because the language that I just mentioned that is used for Jesus, that language in the Roman system, in, in Roman Gospels, in the good news proclaimed by Rome, that language was used for the emperor, for Caesar. According to Roman citizens, Caesar was a son of God. Caesar Augustus had actually proclaimed that his adopted father, Julius Caesar, who had famously been assassinated, was divine, was a god, so that Caesar Augustus could claim that he was a son of God. And as a son of God, Caesar was the image of the divine. And Caesar's image would have been all over the place. On coins, on murals, statues, Caesar's image would have just flooded the imaginations of Roman citizens. But here, the early Christians are taking that language and making it clear that it's actually Jesus who is the Son of God. Jesus is the image of God. That language of holding the cosmos together, the world together, holding all of creation together, again, Caesar was the one who would be talked about as doing that in Rome. It was through military might, through the expansion of the empire, that Caesar would hold things together. But the early Christians say, no, it's Jesus who does that. Jesus is the one who holds all things together. Peace and reconciliation, that language would be used to talk about Caesar also. But the Christians said, no, Jesus is the one who achieves true peace, true reconciliation, not through military might and killing people, but through Jesus' work. That's how peace and reconciliation is achieved. You can see these early Christians taking all of this language that would have been swirling around and clarifying it, focusing it on Jesus, reclaiming these ideas for Jesus. So this hymn, it's a beautiful expression of this gospel that Paul has become a servant of and that we are invited to become servants of, and it focuses on Jesus. But I think there's something else going on here in this hymn as well. Now, if you left off the last few words in verse 20, I don't think many people in Rome would have had that big of an issue with this gospel that Paul is proclaiming. Because this language that's being used in this hymn, in verses 15 through 20, up until the very end, the language being used there is language of power. These are powerful words that were applied to Caesar, and the Christians are taking them and applying them to Jesus, but up until the end of verse 20, they're not really changing the idea of power. The end is about the same there. So I think in Paul's day, many Romans would have been comfortable listening to this message. 
if, again, you leave off the last few words of verse 20. But I also think, sadly, many of us Christians today in the United States, we can be seduced by power pretty easily also. We have all sorts of messages. People proclaiming ideas of what they think is good news, telling us that this is going to be what actually fixes our lives. We have ad campaigns telling us if you buy this product, it's going to make things better. It's going to fix things. It's going to make things perfect in your life. We have marketing strategies designed to make us feel insecure about things so that this product can fix whatever it is. All of that is actually about power and reclaiming power in our own lives, reclaiming a level of autonomy. And it seems like every political message ever is about us voting for people and giving certain people power so that they can use that. And so often it becomes about how they're going to fix our lives, or they already have fixed our lives, and they're going to fix all these problems, and we don't have to sacrifice anything. They'll take care of it all for us. Or again, they just tell us that they've already fixed everything, so let's just go along with the plan. These are all messages of power, invitations for us to try to grab power. So I think if we leave off the last few words in verse 20 in this hymn, we could be seduced by this idea of power and miss what Paul's actually doing here. Because this hymn, it ends with those words in verse 20 at the end. This is all achieved through the blood of Jesus' cross. It's through the blood of Jesus' cross that all of this power is expressed. That all of this power, it reaches its culmination in the cross. For us as Christians today, we're really used to the idea of a cross. In fact, I'm standing in front of a cross right now. Every week we stand here, we're so used to this image that I think we forget sometimes what this would have meant to the early readers of Paul's letter. The cross was not a symbol of power. The cross was the exact opposite of a symbol of power. The cross was a symbol of weakness and shame. If you were to go into a Roman city, as you were entering into the city, along the way, on the road entering into the city, you would see people on crosses. Oftentimes their crimes would be listed with them. And the whole point of this was so that you would be terrified to break the law in that Roman city. Crucifixion was designed to be publicly brutal so that the order that Rome had established would be upheld, so people would be terrified. Crucifixion was really state-sponsored terrorism. It was a government scaring its people into compliance. So it was designed to be physically painful, probably the most painful death one could experience. But it was also designed to be full of shame, And any honor someone might have had was completely taken away when they were crucified. They were stripped down and they were placed on that cross to publicly die as a symbol. No longer as a human being, but now as just a symbol of Rome's power. The cross was not associated with power. This would be similar Christians using the cross as a symbol, it'd be similar to us using an execution chair, maybe, 
as a symbol in today's world. Probably not to the same effect, though, because the cross was even more brutal than that. But take all of this together and realize what these early Christians were doing. They were taking this language of power, all of these words that commonly would have been associated with Caesar, who was supposed to be the picture of power, and they're saying, no, power is actually expressed through the cross. That power wasn't about grabbing control or grabbing might or, or, or controlling other people's lives, but power was about sacrifice, about going to the cross. And the very God that we worship, the God expressed in Jesus Christ, the God of whom Jesus is the image, the sovereign, omnipotent, all-powerful God goes to the cross. That's how power is to be used. That's how it's to be expressed. This gospel that Paul is a servant of, that Paul is proclaiming, that Paul is inviting us to become of, it is a shocking gospel. It is one that should challenge each and every one of us because it's so easy for us to mistake worldly power for the gospel. But what this gospel that Paul is proclaiming does, what it has the potential to do, is to strip away everything in our lives so that we understand the truth. Anything we might mistake for this gospel, anything that sort of uh, that we could think might give us power, it's, it can strip that away so that we have to understand the truth that Jesus really is enough, that Jesus really is the firstborn of creation, that Jesus really is the Lord of all creation, that Jesus is the image of God, and that Jesus is enough in our lives. This gospel that Paul is focused on, it doesn't promise that it's going to fix everything in our lives right away. But what it does is it encourages us to sacrifice so that we can help solve the problems in other people's lives. In the same way Jesus came to die for us, we lay lay down our lives for the sake of others, for the sake of our friends. That's this gospel that Paul is inviting us to become servants of, that Paul is declaring that he is a servant of. So for those of us who want to be servants of this gospel, I think we have to recognize a few things. First, we have to recognize that we should probably be a little more skeptical about the messages that are being proclaimed to us all the time. When we see an advertisement that has given us some sort of false hope that if we just buy a certain product, that things are going to fall into place for us, we should be skeptical. Because we know that life isn't lived just to make our own lives perfect. Through the example of Jesus on the cross, our lives are lived for the sake of others. And that grabbing power to make our own lives perfect, that's not going to move us along in this gospel that Paul is proclaiming. But sacrifice for others will. And when we see any sort of political messages, as we're in this campaign season right now in the middle of it, any sort of political messages that might try to seduce us with power, we need to be skeptical. We need to question all the messages that are coming in and ask ourselves, does this line up with the cross? Is this the type of self-sacrifice for the sake of others that Jesus modeled? Is that in this message that I'm hearing? And if that sacrifice for others isn't there, 
that's a message we should reject because Jesus is the Lord of all creation. No other figure is the image of God except Jesus our Lord. So as Paul invites us into this gospel, we have to recognize it doesn't mean our lives are going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that we're going to have control over our lives and that we're never going to have to give up anything for the sake of others. This gospel means the opposite of that. This gospel always eventually leads to the cross. This gospel cannot be proclaimed without the cross being at the center. And that cross will change our lives. It will change how we see the world. And it will make us servants, not just of this gospel, but servants of all those that God would bring us into contact with. So we can care for this world that God so deeply cared about. That's the gospel to which Paul has become a servant. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, who we know and proclaim is enough for us. So may we become servants of that gospel also. I mean, we accept Paul's invitation in this letter. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I invite you to join me in prayer. Lord, we ask to become servants of this gospel, servants of this gospel that centers on the cross, that focuses on the cross, that culminates in the cross. Help us to be prepared for what it is you may ask us. Help us to be skeptical about messages that might try to seduce us with power and deceive us into thinking that our lives are meant to just secure our own interests, Lord. But help us to sacrifice for others in the way Jesus did. Help us to have that be the defining value, the character trait that defines us in opposition to the rest of the world. Lord, guide us in that. Help us to be servants of this gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As we have a song of